as we prepare for Christmas, as I mentioned in my, even in my prayer, um, we also acknowledge that there is a war going on in other places around this world. There is specifically a war going on in Ukraine. Missiles and sirens, explosions, families um, seeking shelter underground in uh, a train stations. Wives sending husbands off to battle. Yet Christmas next week, next Sunday, will still arrive. I mean, it's happened many times throughout the years, right? In fact, back on Christmas Eve, 1914, maybe you remember this story. Um, in the dank, muddy trenches of the Western Front of World War I, Christmas came. And just for a short while in that occasion, that year, um, that Christmas Eve, they uh, encountered what has been called now the Christmas truce. Remember the story, enemy soldiers began to uh, climb nervously out of uh, their trenches and they began to meet each other in that barbed wire uh, um, filled no man's land. Um, that separated the, the nations, the armies. And normally, um, the British and the, and the German communication across that no man's land uh, was streaking with bullets. <laughs> but that night, that one night, there were handshakes and there were words of kindness. In fact, the soldiers, they sang the Christmas carol, Silent Night, together in unison. They they had other carols. They, they traded tobacco and wine, and they joined in a spontaneous holiday uh, party on that, uh, that cold night. And for the rest of World War I, a conflict that would ultimately claim about um, roughly 15 million lives, there was no other Christmas truces that, that appeared to have occurred. But for that one night, that one night, there was peace. One rifleman of uh, Britain's 3rd Rifle Brigade recounted a German soldier saying this, Today we have peace. Tomorrow you fight for your country. I fight for mine. Good luck. <laughs> Christmas and war. War and Christmas. I mean, those two words, they, they just don't seem to fit together, do they? <laughs> um, but in fact, when we look at uh, Christmas from heaven's perspective, I, I think they do. Because from heaven's perspective, Christmas is a war story in camouflage. It's a story of an invasion with Bethlehem being the beachhead. Now, most of us here, I guess, uh, you've heard a lot of different versions of the Christmas story. It told from a variety of different perspectives. My guess is you've heard the story of Christmas told from the perspective of Mary. I mean, you've certainly heard the story of, uh, uh, told, as we read this morning in Scripture, that from the perspective of, of Joseph. Um, you've probably heard that perspective from the uh, view of, of, of Christmas from the perspective of the shepherds, maybe even... <laughs> from the perspective of that innkeeper, you know, who didn't have room for Jesus. 
But what if we took a look at the birth of Jesus from the perspective of heaven? What would it look like? Would we see anything different? Well, fortunately, I got to tell you, we don't have to guess <laughs> what that perspective would, would uh, look like because the Bible um, tells us, it has the story of, of Christmas given to us through heaven's eyes. And I got to tell you, that picture isn't found in the traditional um, place where you find the Christmas story shared. It's not found in the Gospel of, of Matthew or, or Luke or even the, the theological Gospel of John. It, this retelling of the birth of Jesus is found in all places in the book of Revelation. The last book of the Bible. So I invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation this morning. Uh, you can either turn to it on your phone. If you brought your Bibles, hopefully you did, you can turn to it there. Or you can take one of the pew Bibles. Um, and I invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, the last book of uh, the, the Bible. Um, before we look at the specific story, though, I, first of all, we need to remember um, what the book of Revelation is. Because the book of Revelation is a written description of a vision that the Apostle John experienced while he was in exile. John, see, was one of Jesus' disciples, if you remember that. In fact, he was one of Jesus' inner circle disciples, one of Jesus' closest friends. And he had personally witnessed... Um, a number of Christ's miracles, including his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And after Christ's ascension, um, John had become the, the leader of the early church. And so when the Roman Empire wanted to rid um, the world of the Christian faith of the church, what they did was they sent John off into exile to a small island, Patmos, which is off the coast of uh, modern-day Turkey. And while the believers in the first century um, in those churches were being persecuted and they, and they were being killed for their faith, John, you know, the, the, the leader of the church, one of Christ's disciples, had to sit there on that island, isolated and powerless to do anything to help. One day, then, while he is in prayer, evidently John experiences an incredible vision of Jesus Christ, a revelation of Jesus. <laughs> and in that vision, uh, Jesus um, opens up the heavens to John. And in typical um, apocalyptic language, this vision uses symbols and uses images uh, uh, dragons and beasts and, and angels and trumpets to describe the end of human history and the future second coming of Jesus Christ. And in this vision, Jesus is not meek and mild. Um, this is the, the cosmic Christ, the first and the, the last, the living one, um, the one who is dead but is, is alive forevermore, the uh, the one who holds the keys to both the death and to the grave. This is the Christ who is big enough to sustain and rescue a church that is suffering uh, at the hands of an evil empire. This is the Christ who's big enough to claim victory for a church at war. And in chapter 12 of Revelation, we experience a heavenly flashback 
to that very first Christmas. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12 this morning. Now, I got to tell you, some scholars um, uh, place John's writing here, his uh, writing of his vision, his revelation here, they place this book um, prior to the Gospels, okay? Um, And if that's true, that would mean, catch this, that would mean that his Christmas story would have been the first one told, would have been the first version anybody else heard. Um, It's a picture of a a nativity scene. I got to tell you that you wouldn't want to place on your mantle over your fireplace. Um, Look with me. In this vision, John tells us in verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven. Okay? Um, So we have to understand, this is a symbolic picture of uh, the world's greatest story, the Christmas story. These verses paint a picture of just um, how that ancient prophecy there out of Genesis chapter 3.15 would have been fulfilled. How the, the, the woman's offspring struck Satan's head, his pride and his brilliance. This flashback lifts a, a, a curtain and shows John and, and shows all of us today what that first Christmas looked like from heaven's Perspective. Look with me at the vision, starting in verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she bore, when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Um, you can see this, this vision, this flashback, it has uh, three characters here. Uh, there's a, a woman, there's a dragon, and there is, of course, the child. We have to ask, well, who are they? <laughs> who are they? Well, let's start with the woman. The woman, um, it has been debated um, uh, by Christians for generations, who she is. Some identify her, indeed, as Eve, the mother of the human race. Still others see this woman as Mary, since she's the one who actually gives birth to the child here in this this vision. But we have to remember that this woman is a sign. Uh, She's a symbol. Um, She's clothed with the sun. The story says, uh, the moon is under her feet and on her head is a crown of 12 stars. That number 12 in in that type of literature is the number of God's people. Um, So the woman here is is more than Mary. And um, this woman is also larger than, than, than Mary. She is a sign of all of God's faithful people across the ages, faithful Israel and also the faithful church. 
The second character in this war story is the grotesque seven-headed dragon. <laughs> Again, John reminds us that this dragon is a sign. This dragon's a, a, a symbol. In fact, it's a symbol of Satan, he tells us. We're told that explicitly down in verse 9. Look with me down at, at verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, and the ancient serpent, who was called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth. So... This dragon is, is explicitly Satan. This fiercest dragon's heads and horns and crowns are all familiar symbols of, a, of authority and power. I mean, this is no Puff the Magic Dragon, friends. <laughs> I mean, this is a monstrous, violent, angry, evil dragon with a tail long enough to and wide enough to sweep up one-third of the stars of heaven and bat them down to the earth, which is probably a reference to one-third of the angels of heaven rebelling against God and following Satan. So Satan here is presented as a real supernatural being who has at his disposal one-third of the angels as well as power and, and, and authority. The third character, of course, in this picture is that of the child, this child that's born to this woman. This is Jesus Christ. This is God's son, the prophesied child, the Messiah ruler of Psalm 2. The preexistent word and the Christ who was with God and, and was God and is God, made in flesh, dwelt among us. That's who this is. Jesus is presented here, do you see this, as a king, a child who's destined to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That word translated their um, rule there in verse 5 is the verb to shepherd. <laughs> um, it presents Jesus as a true shepherd of the nations, a true guide and, and leader who can lead the nations to, to peace and and to freedom. A shepherd is a leader who is tender and, and loving in his leadership, a leader who guides instead of pushes or forces. Yet he leads with a rod iron, rod of iron, which refers to his power and authority as the rightful king. The rod of iron balances out this imagery of the, of the shepherd. So as a king, Jesus is both tender and he is also firm. He is caring, and he is also just. And the child, you catch this in this, in this picture here, um, is the mortal enemy of the dragon. And all of the evil that the dragon represents, um, the, the dragon could not get him in heaven. But now that the Messiah has come uh, to earth as this helpless, uh, vulnerable baby, you know, put in the into the hands, the, the care of, of those mere flesh and, and blood people like you and me. <laughs> the dragon sees his opportunity, his opportunity to devour this child and win the war. How can a helpless child, an exhausted woman who has just given birth, how can they resist the cosmic power of this, this dragon? It looks like all is lost, doesn't it? But wait, 
Suddenly, this child is caught up to God and to his throne. This vision, what happens is it skips from the birth of Jesus to Jesus' ascension, uh, bracketing Jesus' entire life here on earth together. Jesus was born into the world. He he lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death uh, for our sins on Good Friday, and he was resurrected from the grave on Easter Sunday, and then he ascended to heaven in the sight of his followers, promising one day that he will return to this earth. That's the way that John and Revelation say to you and I, Merry Christmas. <laughs> it's a story of Christmas through heaven's eyes. I got to tell you, there's a lot of things in here, but I want to draw three insights that we wouldn't normally see if all we had were the Christmas story out of the Gospels um, of, of Matthew and and Luke and, and John. The first insight is this. From heaven's perspective, the birth of Jesus Christ is a declaration of war. Notice what immediately happens after the birth of this little child, down in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. War! Um, Eugene Peterson commenting on this passage notes this. He says, this is not the nativity story that we grew up with. (laughs) Now, Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It excites evil. See, we tend to picture, don't we? Um, And it's wonderful. And and not taking anything away from it, but we tend to picture the, the birth of Jesus kind of as this tranquil, quiet, peaceful event, you know? We picture shepherds in wordless wonder gazing at this infant Jesus. We picture animals silently milling around in that stable. Even our songs um, tell us that when Jesus awakes, no, no crying he makes. <laughs> it's a silent night in which all of creation holds its breath in silent wonder. But see, in the unseen world, I got to tell you, from heaven's perspective, in the unseen world, all hell breaks loose, breaks out as God finally seeks to wrestle back creation from the power of evil. (laughs) The birth of Jesus was a launch of God's assault on the power of evil, it was an invasion. In his book, The Faith, Chuck Colson has a chapter entitled The Invasion. In it, he describes very, in a powerful way, he describes the invasion of Normandy on D-Day, June 6, 1944. D-Day was the largest seaborne landing in history. More than 150,000 U.S. troops were committed to the initial invasion, employing 6,900 vessels, 4,100 landing craft, and 12,000 airplanes. Within two weeks, the British deployed an additional 314,547 men, 54,000 vehicles, and 102,000 tons of supplies. While the Americans put ashore additional 314,504 men, 41,000 vehicles, and 116,000 tons of supplies at Omaha. 
10,000 tons of bombs were dropped on German defenses with the word given to French resistance to sabotage key bridges, railway lines, telephone exchanges, and electricity substations. Despite the Allies' air superiority and the hours of heavy bombardment against the beach defenses by the warship guns, the Germans stayed intact as thousands of brave men in the landing craft motored toward the seashore or toward the shore. Nothing stood between those troops and those German guns but the morning air. At Omaha and Gold and Sword and Juneau and Utah beaches, the troops' only chance was to run and swim and crawl up the beach to the seawalls where they could reassemble for an assault on the enemy gun positions. The first hours at Omaha, more than 2,400 men died. Over the next few weeks, the battle progressed inland. The U.S. would eventually lose 29,000 men and more than 100,000 wounded and missing. While the British gave up 11,000 of its finest and Canada 5,000. And all this was just the initial set of invasions. The Battle of the Bulge and other potentially catastrophic reversals were still to come. But the invasion of Normandy was so massive and successful that it allowed the Allies to turn every counterattack into another victory. Colson writes this, As if preordained, the outcome was clear. The evils of Hitler and fascism would be conquered. On Christmas morning, an even greater invasion took place. God and the great cosmos struggle between good and evil chose to deal with Satan's rule over the earth. He invaded. Now most people in Palestine at that time of Jesus' birth were expecting a messianic invasion like the one we saw at D-Day. Conquerors in armor, you know, bringing sword to set the people free from oppression. <laughs> but God, in his incredible wisdom, chose a quiet invasion. <laughs> An invasion that confounded and perplexed the wisdom of humanity. God's assault on evil was to bring his son into this world through a virgin birth as a helpless little baby. And ultimately, this assault would be the defeat of Satan and the defeat of the works of evil. Second insight I think we can draw from this um, Christmas story is from heaven's perspective, the birth of Jesus was an invitation to humanity. See, evil has infected <laughs> the human race like a deadly virus. God has the power to destroy that virus, but in order to destroy the virus, he also has to destroy the humans who are infected with it. This deadly virus is called sin in the Bible. And it's a condition of rebellion. It's a condition of rebellion against God. According to the Bible, all people have been infected uh, with sin. It's worked itself, in fact, into the very fabric of all of our lives. God is going to destroy the sin and evil, but first he wants to offer 
the human race a cure for the virus so they don't get it swept away as he destroys the evil. When God sent Jesus into the world on Christmas Day, it was an expression of God's desire to give us a way to flee the eventual destruction of evil. It's an invitation to experience God's salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, and reconciliation with our creator. It was a call to live under the rule of God, to reorient our lives as, as subjects of God's kingdom rather than the kingdom of darkness that we experience around us every day. See, while we focus on uh, things like gift giving and Christmas trees and Christmas parties and all the, the Christmas celebrations, God's view uh, views Christmas as an invitation to you and I. So let me ask you, have you RSVP'd to God's invitation? <laughs> have you responded to his invitation by surrendering to God by faith in Jesus Christ, the son that he gave us on Christmas morning? Have you trusted that he lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death to deliver you from your sins? Listen, I got to tell you, if you haven't, you're missing the real point of Christmas from God's perspective. See, once you respond to the invitation, all the other stuff, it takes on a deeper meaning. I mean, the lights and the, the carols and the trees and the gifts. But if you haven't responded to this invitation, you've missed the most important part of Christmas. From heaven's perspective, Christmas signaled an invitation to the human race. Let me give you one final insight from this story. From heaven's perspective, the birth of Jesus Christ signaled the defeat of Satan. Later in this passage here in Revelation chapter 12, we, we read about this dragon, this, this devil, and his angels being defeated and cast out of heaven and down to earth. It's a picture of the downfall of, uh, of Satan and the coming uh, kingdom of, of God. The devil has been driven back. And although there may still be, uh, he may still be active on earth, from the perspective of heaven, he has been soundly trounced and his days are numbered. <laughs> Any opposition he gives in the meantime are simply an enraged act of desperation by a defeated foe. That Christmas child came to destroy the works of the devil. And he did destroy them and he continues to do so. Through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Jesus is present with us today as he was when he walked on this earth. Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus came to us at Christmas. He came to us through his Holy Spirit. As Revelation reminds us at the end that the same Christ is coming back to earth. And when he does, he, he, he's going to be completely different. When he returns, he won't, be, he won't come as this helpless, uh, dependent little child, but rather as God-man that he really is. He won't come quietly in a little town, 
no-name town of Bethlehem. No, he'll come with a trumpet blast and an angel shout, and every eye will see him. And he'll not come through a mother's womb, but rather he will come riding on a white stallion. Jesus will come wearing the name of King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He will come with all the saints and all the hosts of God to make visible on earth what is already true in heaven. And all the evils of Satan, that great dragon and his angels, will finally be conquered and defeated. Lee C. Bishop, a psychiatrist and military reservist, was stationed at Bagram Airfield in uh, Afghanistan on Christmas Eve 2008. In the dim light of dusk, he watched as a procession of military vehicles approached the airfield came to a stop and carefully unloaded a flag-draped steel casket. He knew that somewhere in the United States, a family is going to suffer a Christmas homecoming that no one wanted. It was a heartbreaking scene for Bishop to take in, one all too familiar in war. But then came another scene from that Christmas Eve. In an article for Christianity Today magazine entitled Christmas in Afghanistan, Bishop writes this, after watching that casket be unloaded from the military vehicle, I find myself walking along the main avenue of Bagram Airfield. All is different. Soldiers holding candles are belting out Christmas carols with gusto. Down the street, luminaries brighten the walkway into the clamshell-shaped auditorium where cheerful groups of uniformed men and women enter for a Christmas concert. Two blocks away, the chapel is filling for a 6 o'clock Christmas Eve service. He continues, Jesus did not come to provide an occasion to sing carols, drink toasts, feast, and exchange gifts, but... We are right to do these things, even as soldiers die and families grieve, because he came. And in his coming, he brought joy and peace, the joy that overcomes our sorrows and the only kind of peace that ultimately matters. It's the peace of which the end of all wars, terrible as they are, is merely one token. It's the peace that means the long war between heart and its maker is over. It's a peace treaty offered in Bethlehem and signed in blood on Calvary. And Bishop concludes this way. He says, so joy to the world and to every celebrating or grieving or hurting soul in it. The Lord has come. Let heaven and nature and even those who stand watch with lighted candles in the land of the shadow of death. Let us all sing. Friends, the birth of Christ was the beginning of the end of the world's most epic battle. And so we do well to celebrate. As Revelation 12, 12, John says there, Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Let us (laughs) rejoice. Would you pray with me?
God, thank you for the good news that the beginning of the end of this cosmic battle has begun. It began on that Christmas morning when your son, Jesus Christ, was born as that little baby for us. God, today is an invitation, an invitation for all of us here to celebrate who you are, to rejoice in that reality. And Lord, if we, if anyone is here that has not yet received, accepted that invitation, pray today, God, that you might work in their hearts, that they might, in fact, do that. They might take that step of surrender. We pray these things, God, giving you glory. I want to sing um, to the world to rejoice in voice together. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.